Uh, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to go to uh, verses 11 through 22 in just a couple of minutes. Uh, I've, I've, I've thrown out the Advent series for at least today and maybe for the rest of the month. I, I'll, I'll just have to keep praying about it and see. It's been an interesting week, as we all know. Uh, I think for uh, probably just about all of us, it's been an emotionally exhausting week as we try to sort through uh, what's happening in our community, and um, really since August, since the shooting, uh, and I know that, uh, that there are a lot of preconceived notions out there. I know that people have, have already kind of formed conclusions in their minds, uh, and, and those conclusions are wide and varied. I would imagine in this room there are there pr- probably any way you can look at this is probably represented in our congregation this morning. And I don't pretend to have any more answers than anybody else does. Uh, and, there don't, and the answers seem to be pretty few and far between right now, uh, quite honestly. Uh, pain and, uh, and frustration seems to be uh, the, the tenor of the day, regardless of, of kind of where you come down on the whole thing. Uh, and so while, I, while I'm saying that I'm going to set aside the Advent series. I'm going to set aside the Advent series that I planned uh, for right now. And again, I'll see where we go next Sunday. But, but it is an Advent series because the question really uh, that is being asked is, does the coming of Jesus really matter? Uh, is, is there any impact his ministry and his life can have in situations like this? We actually went over to Kansas City on Thursday morning where our oldest son lives with his wife and and three daughters, and uh, we were walking around the, the plaza on uh, Friday afternoon, and people were uh, on the street corners. Uh, there was a saxophone guy playing Christmas carols. You could hear some of the music uh, coming out of some of the stores. Uh, and then there were a group of protesters that were walking down the street, half of whom got arrested and carried off. And you're just sitting there going, it doesn't feel like Advent at all, and it doesn't feel like Advent makes any difference in anybody's life. And that's the question that we need to tackle this morning through Scripture, not through my opinion or your opinion or anybody else's opinion for that matter. It really comes down to what has God said he's going to do and what is God doing? And that's what we want to, uh, to look at because that doesn't change. Our circumstances change and, and, uh, and moments like this uh, come and go and it's not that they're not significant, but what's ultimately significant it is, do we have answers in moments like this and beyond for life, not uh, after our lives here on earth, but also life here on earth as disciples of Jesus. So the Apostle Paul speaks to this. The Apostle Paul actually speaks to this question from prison. Uh, he's chained to a Roman guard 24-7. Uh, chances are he's chained to four Roman guards one on each wrist and one on each hand. Uh, he's under arrest. His, uh, his civil rights have been completely exploited. He's a citizen of Rome, and yet he's not being treated that way. He's, been, he's being treated as a criminal. And he is talking about uh, the brokenness of human relationships and what God is doing about that. Ephesians chapter 2, starting verse 11, and reading through verse 22 here, the word of God. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called or by those who are called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at one time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope 
and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in the ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace." And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. Will you pray with me? Father, we ask for your Spirit and your word to speak into our lives this morning. We sing, O come all ye faithful, as we sing, uh, Lord, come and be our peace. So we sing, Lord Jesus, your, your name is love, and you are the one who can, who can bring together people who are estranged. You are the one who has come, as, as Paul has written in this passage, to destroy the dividing wall of hostility. Uh, and if I could think of one word that describes... Uh, the tenor of our town right now, I think it's that. It's hostility for a lot of different reasons. So, Father, uh, human wisdom has not, will not, cannot solve this problem on its own. Lord, you are the only one who ultimately brings peace into our lives. But you tell us also that it's not supposed to stop with us. It's supposed to flow through us to others. Lord, I pray that you'd help us see that in this passage this morning and that as we ask some questions, we wouldn't, we wouldn't be defensive about the questions that you ask us, uh, nor would we be um, self-righteous and expecting others to change while we stay the same. Father, nor would we, would we take on in an, in an unreasonable sense of guilt. Lord, we pray that you would, would bring to bear your word on our lives, whatever the outcome should be. Lord, the, the task of addressing this is certainly beyond me. My opinion is simply that, no better or worse than any other person's. Lord, we don't come here for man's opinion. We could stay home and turn on the TV and talk amongst ourselves and get that. Father, we need your words of life to speak into our hearts and minds today. So please forgive me for my sin. Do not let me stand in the way of what you want to teach us this morning. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to give you the sermon in a sentence as uh, we typically do, but it's a sentence followed by a question this morning, and the sentence is this, God is building a kingdom of peace and unity through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we just read, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to pull it apart a little bit and see what God is doing in building his kingdom. But then there's a follow-up question, the, the question of application, where is the church? Now, I, I don't put that question there to, to try to elicit some kind of feeling of guilt, as I just prayed. That is not 
my intention. I'm not saying, now where is the church? Church, you've been terrible and awful, and, and it's all your fault that things are happening the way they are. I'm not suggesting that. But I am suggesting that we must engage in this question. And we must be able to answer that question individually as well as corporately. Where are you? If you're a disciple of Jesus, you're the church. I'm the church. We are the church. When we leave this room, when we go back into our neighborhoods, when we go back into our places of work, we go back to our schools, we are the church of Jesus Christ. Are we going into our community with this attitude, with this understanding of God's calling in our lives? So it, it's an honest question, but it's not a question that's intended to, uh, to make you hang your head in shame. Rather, it's a question intended to help us wrestle with where God wants us to be working in his kingdom in partnership with what he's doing. The first thing I want to say, I have three observations about this text. The first thing I want us to see is what I'm going to call the deep divide of or the deep divide in human relationships. What's the condition, the normal condition of the world? And Paul lays it out pretty clearly. He says there's several different divides. If you begin in verse 11, he says that uh, you guys who were one time Gentiles in the flesh, you were called uncircumcision by those who are of the circumcision. In other words, there are religious differences among us. There are people who are on the outside of faith looking in. There are people of different faiths. And Paul starts right off by saying, those of you that now stand in the gospel, those of you that now have put your faith in Christ for salvation, God's drawn you to himself. If you go back and you read the earlier passage in chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul says you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live, just like the rest of the world, and you didn't work your way out of that. You didn't earn your salvation. Rather, because God is rich in love and abounding in mercy, he made you alive in Christ. It's by grace you have been saved. But up until that moment, there are great religious divides in human relationships. There are also, according to verse 12, there are cultural divides. He says, remember that you, in verse 12, remember that you at that time were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of the promises, the covenant promises. What Paul is saying there is that there are cultural differences. The Jewish community the, the people of God, as we read about them in the Old Testament, had a very distinct way of living their lives that was, that was really pretty radically different than the people around them. And we don't have to look back to Scripture to see cultural differences. Cultural differences are all around us. I, I looked up some mishaps that companies have, have uh, had in their uh, marketing in other cultures. And I'll just give you a couple of them this morning. Pepsi Coley, uh, several years ago, when Pepsi entered the Chinese market, the, what they were trying to say uh, in the translation was, Pepsi brings you back to life. That was, that was the slogan, and they were, they were trying to translate it. What they ended up putting on, on billboards and on TVs all over China was, Pepsi brings your ancestors back from the grave. <laughs> now, that cuts a pretty fine line right off the bat, doesn't it? Do I want great Aunt Betty to come back or do I not, you know? I didn't like her too much. I'm not having any Pepsi-Cola products, okay? The, clearly, there was a, a misstep there. Uh, Salem cigarettes, uh, when they were uh, translated into the, the Japanese market, Salem, feeling free. What actually ended up being written was, when smoking Salem, you feel so refreshed that your mind seems to be free and empty. 
Uh, now, maybe you can say if you smoke that, that your mind may be empty. I, I won't go there. But uh, it got lost in translation. General Motors had a perplexing problem when they introduced the Chevy Nova in South America. Despite their best efforts, they weren't selling many cars. They finally realized that in Spanish, Nova means it won't go. <laughs> it doesn't take too much to know that there are cultural differences, and I appreciate the fact that Scripture speaks very honestly about that. Those are some of the more lighthearted differences in our culture, but I would say that for the past several months in St. Louis, we have, we have seen some of the more serious differences. There's also, Paul says in verse 12, a, a spiritual divide in human relationships. Paul says this as he ends chapter, uh, excuse me, uh, verse 12. He says, you were strangers to the covenants and promises, having no hope and without God in the world. So the, the spiritual divide there in human relationships is that your faith in Christ, my faith in Christ, causes us to look at the world a certain way. We look at the world as, as the kingdom of God. And we look at the world as, as not being sacred and secular. In other words, there's a, there's a part for my spiritual life. But then I put that down and I put it in the drawer and I close it and it's fine. And then I go and I live my secular life and, and those two never, never cross paths. We say there, there is no distinction. All truth is God's truth, whether it's science, whether it's math, whether it's theology. We say that God is the Lord of, of all creation. Whether we accept that or, or don't accept that, that, is, that causes us, if we are disciples and we believe that, it causes us to have a worldview that says, then there's something more important than me. There's something greater than me just getting everything I possibly can in the 60, 70, 80, or 90 years I have here because after that, all bets are off and I have no idea what's going to happen to me. If that's my worldview, I'm going to live that worldview out in my life. But as a disciple of Jesus saying, I, I was created for a relationship with God for all of eternity, and that starts right now in following Jesus, that's going to lead me down a certain path. Paul's honesty says there are spiritual divides in human relationships. But it also leads to emotional and social divides. Notice how he sums this up in verse 14. He's talking about Jesus being our peace, but he's talking about what Jesus is doing and bringing people together, and he describes it this way. He is, he is breaking down in his flesh, by, by his life, the dividing wall of hostility. In other words, when we look at different cultures, when we look at different ways that people view the world, one of the emotions that can come up in our hearts is hostility, is anger, is resentment. And Paul says these, these man-made natural barriers that we have created don't just exist. So we say, well, you live on your side of the fence, and I'll live on my side of the fence, and we'll, we'll be just fine. We say, you live on your side of the fence, and if you come across onto my side of the fence, I'm going to get you. <laughs> and there's an emotion that goes with these, these ways in which we look at the world. And so in a sense, when you read the latter half of, of chapter 2 of Ephesians, you say, you know what, this looks pretty hopeless. These divides are very real. If we passed around the microphone this week and you said, how did you see or experience or, or envision some of these divides this week? People could share very freely some of the things that, that we've seen in our own community. And, and the question that a lot of folks have asked me, and, and I'm flattered that you actually think I might have an answer, you know, what do we do about this? What, what's the role that we should play? And, and what's behind that question is a sense of it's, it's too big, it's too enormous, it's, it's just too hopeless. There really isn't necessarily anything that one, two, three, four, or five hundred of us could actually do. There are deep divides in human relationships. 
The scripture is clear about that. But if you read later on in the text, what you find is that there has been a radical shift. And that's my second observation in this passage, that something has changed dramatically. I, I mean, like night and day. And we read in verse 19 the following. So then you are no longer, so we're going to find out what we're not anymore, strangers and aliens. But our new identity is what? But you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Something has changed incredibly. Paul begins with the negative. You're no longer outsiders. You're no longer misunderstood. You no longer, no longer speak a, a different language. You're no longer uh, unwelcomed in the society, but you are, are part of the community now. Something's changed in your standing. That's, that's what's been laid aside. And if you've ever been to another country, if you've ever been someplace where you don't speak the language, if you've ever been in a different culture for any amount of time, and you've gotten away from like the all-inclusive resort, and you've actually gone and engaged in you know, the community in which you, you find yourself, you feel pretty much like a stranger pretty quickly. I remember when I got off the plane my Christmas, my junior year of college, went with a friend of mine who was from Germany, and uh, we'd have him to our house on, on some occasions. So one year he said, let's go to my house for Christmas. And, I, and I'd taken like three years of German in high school and two years of German in college, got off the plane, and he's hugging his family, his mom and his dad and his brother, and they're talking, and I'm going, that doesn't sound like German to me. <laughs> I can't believe this country doesn't speak the, the correct German language, you know. And then I began to learn the customs, and they were, they were different than my customs, and the way they celebrated Christmas was different than the way I celebrate Christmas, and all that, even though I was with friends, kind of started to make me feel uncomfortable. These differences uh, exist when you are an outsider, when you're not part of the community. But Paul says something's changed, and that's no longer an issue. And then he speaks to the positive side of it. He says, but now you are what? You are fellow citizens with the saints. You're now a member. You, you belong. You have citizenship. You've you know, kind of raised your right hand and, and promised to be part of this nation. You, you've been adopted into this kingdom of God. And your citizenship now belongs there, which means equal rights and equal privileges and equal responsibilities. We have all of those as citizens of the United States, do we not? We have, our, our goal is to have equal rights. That we're not a nation governed by people, but we're a nation governed by laws. And that that law should be blind to your status. Now, I know it doesn't work out that way in the real world all the time, but that is the intention. That the privileges are the same and that also the, the responsibilities are the same. You know, we try to say every, every uh, Sunday before a Tuesday election, no matter what the election is, hey, don't forget to get out and vote. Why? Because that's our responsibility. It's what we should do as people who are citizens of this nation. And Paul says there's a shift taking place. You're no longer not just outsiders, but you're actually now citizens. And then he takes it even one step further and he says beyond this you are now members of the household of God you've actually been adopted into the family of God you're, you're a son you're a daughter of God the shift is is incredible you were a stranger to God now you're a citizen of his kingdom but not only citizen of his kingdom but now you're one of his children I was reading an, an article this week in the St. Louis magazine about a, a restaurant owner in Ferguson and he was uh, recanting a story, talking about a story where uh, there were some folks in the restaurant and uh, one of the guys said something about, you know, I didn't quite like the way my burger tasted, so you ought, to give me, you ought to give me another one free. And he looked at him and he said with a big smile on his face, I'm going to treat you just like I treat my family. I'm going to ignore you. And he turned and he walked back into the kitchen. And, but there was a sense of playfulness about it, right? 
there's a sense of laughter. It says, of, of course he could, he could say that to them because they're buddies, because they're friends, because they're, they're family. Right? And there's a sense of we love each other. There's a sense of we, we belong together. We're not, just, we're not just fellow citizens. We actually are, are brothers and sisters in Christ. So Paul starts out the chapter by saying there's this real problem in the world. And, and when you get towards the end of the chapter, verse 19, he's saying it's all different now. And, and you have to ask your, the question, what happened? How, how, did the, how did we go from hostility to peace? What happened to make this change? And that's my third observation in this text. And Paul says the same thing three times so that we won't miss it. Um, if you've ever had a teacher that wanted to make sure you got it and they kept repeating it over and over again, maybe you weren't quite learning the lesson and so you had to go back and review it once again. Some of us, maybe you're a little bit slower than some of the rest of you. We need repetition. But Paul says the same thing three times. He tells us what's happened so that this, this radical shift can actually be the reality in our lives and not just a dream for which we hope. The first thing that he says has happened is that the blood of Jesus has been spilled. Look at verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far off have been brought near. How? By the blood of Christ. What's Paul saying there? Paul is saying that sin demands punishment. Paul is saying that God doesn't turn a blind eye when I gossip about you, when I have hatred towards you in my heart, when I have lustful thoughts, when I uh, am greedy and keep for myself that which I should use for the care of others, those sins can't go unpunished by God. They are hateful to God because God is loving and God is gracious and God is merciful and God is completely just. And God demands that sin be punished. And when Paul says, but you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Don't read past that too quickly, friends. Think about what that's saying. It's saying that the only person in the history of the world that's been perfect traded his perfection for your imperfection. The only person in this world who's never, ever sinned, and the only person in this world that doesn't deserve the judgment of God, got the ju judgment of God that I deserve. That's what Paul is saying when he talks about the blood of of Christ. If that doesn't spark at least an inkling of humility in your heart, you're not paying attention with all due respect. Why would God do that for me? And I know some of you, why would God do that for you? Why would God take a bunch of sinners like the people assembled in this room and say, their souls for all of eternity are, are as precious to me as the blood of my own son? You want to know how you go from hostility to peace? It's through the sacrifice of Jesus. Paul says it once, but then he, he says it again when he talks about the goal of Jesus in verses 14 and 15, and then again in verse 17, he says this, for he himself, Jesus, is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law and the commandments expressed in the ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two so making peace. And then we, we've read verse 17 already, but I'll read it again. He came and preached peace you were far off and peace to those who were near. The goal of Jesus is this glorious progression towards peace without distinction. That what he's doing when it says that he himself is our peace means that he's our peace with God. That God to man is now good. 
that God looks at us and he looks through the lens of Jesus and his perfection and he says, I can accept those disciples at Green Tree Community Church because Jesus died for them. And that was the goal of Jesus. The goal of Jesus was this progression towards peace with God, but also man to God. As Jesus preaches his gospel to you, as Jesus says to you, I've gone to the cross for you, I've died for your sins, there's nothing you can do to earn that. Simply believe it by faith. Jesus is telling you to lay down your guilt. Jesus is telling you to lay down the conception that you have in your mind that you could never be good enough for God to love you. I typed in my search engine this week, if God's loved me, then I should love, or if God's forgiven me, I should forgive you. I just wanted to see what would come up. I want to see if there are any kind of cool, to be honest, I was looking for an anecdotal story for this point. Didn't find one, okay? But you know what came up? Over and over and over again, does God, does God really forgive me? And if so, could I really forgive myself? <laughs> you see, the vast majority of us are walking around. We, we mask it in self-righteousness. We, we mask it in, in trying to look good, but what we're walking around with is this deep sense of self-loathing, that God could never love us. It also comes out in our hostility towards one another. And God says, you can lay it down. Not only is the God-to-man relationship restored, but the man-to-God relationship is restored. And therefore, Paul can say in verse 17, and he's bringing this peace to those of you who are close and those of you who are far away. Why? Because the peace is supposed to then up being man-to-man. It's supposed to focus and fall into our community and our relationships with one another inside the, the community of Green Tree Community Church and in, inside our world wherever it takes us. The peace that we have with God, scripturally speaking, is always intended to have an impact on our human relationships. So we can't sit on the sidelines in a conversation that's taking place in our community today. To do so would be wrong. To do so would be to say there, there are acceptable losses, that, that, that as long as it doesn't get too bad, it's okay. I read a story a couple weeks ago about a solar plant in uh, California that, that's going up and, you know, clean energy and all that, but they were being protested by animal rights groups. And what the animal rights groups were saying was that the solar panels would reflect the image of a bird as a bird was flying and it would fly into it and it would be killed when it, hit, when it flew into the solar panel with the sun. It would actually be burned up instantly. And they were saying there would be over 10,000 birds a year that flew by these so solar panels that would, that would just be ignited and, and gone. And the response of the company was, we've looked at it and it's not 10,000, it's probably only 1,000. Now, whoever the guy is in charge of their PR company should probably be let go. He should probably look for another job. But seriously, that's your answer? Your answer is that 1,000 is okay. Not 10,000, that would be bad, but 1,000 is okay. But what are Christians saying right now? As long as it stays in Ferguson, that, then that'll be okay? Really? Is that our response? That's not what Scripture calls us to. Scripture says you, you, you can't be affected by the love of God and not have it filter out into your relationships very intentionally with other people. And I want you to notice the key focus on this distinction. He, he covers the, the waterfront. I want to give you a couple of other passages. In Matthew chapter 28, when Jesus is giving his disciples their marching orders, and that's you and us today, it comes right down to us. What does he say? Go and make disciples of what? All 
nations. Everybody's part of this deal. And then look at Revelation chapter 5. It's talking about the, the throng of people before the throne of God, and they're, they're praising Jesus. Uh, they're praising the Lamb. And it says, they sang a new song, Worthy Are You, and I, and I had to shrink it down a little bit, for by your blood you ransom people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God. I want you to notice that little phrase almost right smack dab in the middle. You have ransomed people for God. The father said to the son, go get some people and make sure you get, you get, make sure you get people from everywhere. Make sure you get people from South Africa and make sure you get people from Siberia. Make sure you get people from Kirkwood. Make sure you get people from Japan. Make sure you get people from the jungles of Papua New Guinea and from the streets of Brazil and every place in between. There's nobody outside of the redemptive plan of God. His intention was to have a party that, that brings everyone into the fold. I've met Christians in Jamaica and I've had a wonderful time, even at a place called the infirmary where, where people go to die. I've met Christians in Haiti and seen People let their neighbors go ahead of them to be served by a doctor, even when their children are very sick. I've had the privilege of going, and I'm going again in January. to, And it's really, I can't say help build a home because I can't do anything. I carry this stuff, and I, I bring it over, and the other people build it. But I've had the opportunity to meet Christians in Mexico and in Russia and in South Africa. And, and, and I have to stop and ask my question, why is it that when I go to those places, I'm really wanting to engage with, with people that don't know Christ, and I'm really wanting to get to know the Christians there, and I'm really wanting to be able to celebrate our culture of differences, but then when I come home, I can't walk across the street and do the same thing. It's a fair question, because the focus of God is the focus on no distinction, on no differences. The goal of Christ is to build one new family of God that knows no racial, no national, no ethnic boundaries. So Paul says, how did we get here? We got here by the blood of Christ. We got here by the goal of Christ. And then again in verse 16, he reemphasizes, he says it one more time, by the cross of Christ. And that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. The cross of Christ. The epitome of sacrifice and humiliation and death in order to gain peace. What is the outcome? Where does all that lead? Well, I can tell you where it leads with God. can't necessarily tell you that it leads this place in my heart every day, 24-7, but it's where it should lead in my heart. But I can tell you what the outcome is with God. The outcome with God is that our commonality is in Christ. And that doesn't erase our human diversity. That Our human diversity actually enriches the body of Christ that leads to a unity of peace of, with God's people. Because of our togetherness in Christ, we can celebrate the differences that we see in this life, and that actually instills unity and peace. Because our cultural begins to be something we celebrate, something we leverage to use for telling more people about the gospel, and not something that makes us run and hide. That's God's intention. I want to take you back to the sermon in a sentence. God is building a kingdom of peace and unity through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Where is the church? And I'll put it this way as we begin to wrap up here. Where is Green Tree? 
And I don't know that I know the answer to that this morning. Again, I, it's kind of like I was looking for a good anecdotal story. I don't have a really great story to end on this morning. I've been wrestling with this for the last five days. But I, I know one thing. I know where we're going to be in less than a year. I mean, if we're going to be honest about it, we're going to be right on the line between white and black in Kirkwood. I don't know what that means for us. I, I don't know how we're supposed to uh, follow God in that, but I know we should start praying about that right now. I know we should commit ourselves to saying, God, we, we want to be used by you for all people in Kirkwood to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that means we're probably going to have to think differently than we've thought before. So while I don't have all the answers, and while I might keep preaching on this, even though it might not feel a whole lot like Christmas <laughs> as we go through the month of December, I, I want us to bow before our Father and say, Lord, your will be done. We have a lot of different notions about what's happened and what's happening and, and a lot of different notions about what may happen. But we call ourselves disciples of Jesus. And if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian and you're wondering how Christians react in this situation, that's a very fair question. And I would encourage you to watch us and see what you see. What I hope we see is a group of people that maybe don't have the answers but are willing to engage for the cause of Christ in a way that maybe we haven't before, for God's glory, for our good, and for the growth of his kingdom. Will you pray with me? Father, we, uh, we come before you this morning. Uh, I'll say I'm thankful for this passage of Scripture, Lord, because it gives me hope. It, it grounds my feet when uh, they've been, uh, my foundation's been a little bit shaken. Father, I thank you that you are about the work of peace. You don't ignore justice. You made sure justice demand was met at the cross of Christ so that every person in this room who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And that we can't out the grace of God, that there isn't a person here who is so sinful that they're unworthy of the cross. Lord, every one of us is unworthy of the cross, but you say it's a free gift. So, Father, you give us the gift of the cross in the context of a hostile world, and you call us to go and make the peace. And, Lord, I'm not sure how we do that, but I pray that you would show us that. And I pray that you would show us that individually and that you would show us that corporately and that we would trust you and we would follow you where you lead us as a congregation. We pray for our city, Lord Jesus, that your healing power, that your peace would win over all else and that we could somehow be used in that process. We pray in your name. Amen. Will you stand and sing with us?